my eight-year-old is obsessed with Taylor Swift, the anti-hero song. And there's a line in that song where Taylor Swift says, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I felt that way for most of my career. And what I didn't recognize was that I was walking into spaces and places and a corporate America that was not built for someone who looked like me. And so my entire life, I had been chasing inclusion and then made a decision to transition to doing this work full time as a chief diversity officer so I could chase inclusion on behalf of all of us. What would you do all over again and why? I'm Natalie Carpenter, women's health and fertility advocate, dot connector, and former corporate brand warrior. Each week, join me in candid conversation with an inspiring public figure who boldly shares their real life stories of adversity, impact, and what they did next. And if they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. Welcome to the All Over Again podcast. Mina Malik is a corporate changemaker with a track record of transforming businesses. Her passion for inclusive storytelling led her to become a chief diversity officer and to build end-to-end inclusion ecosystems across big and small organizations. In her first book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, Mita is saying all the quiet parts out loud of what holds us back from making meaningful progress in this work. If Mita Malik had to do it all over again, she would ask for help with her writing ambitions and her career much earlier. Listen in to hear the full conversation. Good morning, Mita. Welcome to All Over Again podcast. It's so great to see you. Thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to reconnecting with you. Likewise, it's been a minute since the Hey Mama event that we did during the pandemic, which feels forever ago and yesterday at the same time. Absolutely. And you connected me with Alexandra Carter, who was on the panel. And I have a story about uh, my connection with her and my book coming out, which I'm excited (gasps) to talk about. Oh my gosh. Okay. Do you want to tell me now or do you want to tell me later? Well, I can tell you now. I mean, that panel was amazing. It was during COVID. And I don't know if you remember, my daughter was really sick that night. So I had to leave the panel early. And I just remember the next day getting a note from Alex saying, I'd love to have coffee with you. And I thought, what does this Wall Street Journal bestseller, badass negotiations professor, author want to have coffee with me? And we got on a Zoom and she said to me, you have an amazing story to tell. You need to write your book. You need to write your book now. I've never met this woman until the panel that you moderated. She sent me her entire nonfiction manuscript. She sent me the list of all the agents that she had approached and publishers. And that is another story about women just giving to other women and lifting other women up. So then I started with my book process. And then years later, we reconnected because her best friend lives in the town I live in now. And she's just been sending me all these love notes and texts, just cheering me on. So it's just amazing. That Hey Mama panel was pivotal. That makes me so happy to hear. And what's interesting is you're saying that the first thing that struck me when you were talking about your experience was, I didn't understand why, you know, this big badass author, Alex, was contacting me to want to meet and telling me that I should write a book. I mean, the first thing I thought of was, of course she was. You were selling yourself short. 
What happened? We all have self-doubts. We all have self-doubts. I always talk about, I am not an overnight success. It has taken me a lot of work, self-doubt, rejection to get here, but it was pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible when you meet people who see something in you that you haven't seen in yourself yet. Isn't that amazing how that happens? It's amazing. So I'm forever grateful for you, Hey Mama, the panel, meeting her. She's in my book acknowledgments. Uh, Yeah, she's played a pivotal role in me finding my way back to writing. That's amazing. I love hearing that story. So let's talk about you. Can you describe yourself in three adjectives? My three adjectives for now in this season of my life, I would say is kind, empowered, and unstoppable. Unstoppable is my word of the year. Every year I pick a word. So unstoppable was my year word of the year for 2023. If you ask me these three adjectives next year, they might change, but that's how I'm feeling today. So let's talk about your mantra from this year, unstoppable. Why did you choose it? I chose it because it's taken me a long time to get where I am. And so now I just feel like I am really focused on being the best version of myself. And when we all can do that, we're unstoppable. If we start really focusing on what our unique talents and gifts are, it's just an exciting time. It's an exciting time. Indeed. And we will talk more about your book because I want to learn more about that. And interestingly enough, this morning I was on LinkedIn and I noticed your post about comparison. Again, it's like interesting for me to think, wow, Mita, she's a, a normal person just like us. She's not just a public figure. Talk to me about what inspired you to write that post. You know what inspired me to write that post? I'm going to be real honest is I saw all these posts people had about going to Cannes, Cannes Lion Film Festival. And I'm a marketer. I spent many years in marketing, transitioned to chief diversity officer work. And I had a moment, listen, we're all human. I am. I'm like, I should be there taking selfies. Like, why can't I be there? Why can't I be as cool? Then you go down this rabbit hole. I should have been a chief marketing officer. And oh my God, all these people have all these cool experiences they give their kids. I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not social enough. No one invites me to parties. Like, we're sort of going through this rabbit hole of all these things. But I think I know I'm growing because I get better and better. I have, over the years, less compared myself to others. People will say all sorts of things to me, like, why did you become a chief diversity officer? You should have been a marketer. You could have been a CMO by now. Like, when are you going to go back to doing, like, a real job? And you're like, what? And so... People will always say those things to you. But I also think we live in a society right now. I mean, why are we so obsessed with comparing ourselves with each other? Well, one, because it's a way for brands to sell us more stuff. Let's just be honest, right? More consumption of things. But I also think it's easier for me to compare myself to you than for me to focus on the work I need to do. So it's easier for me to be like watching your Instagram be like, oh my God, I can't believe she did this. And rather than me being like, okay, well, what am I proud of? Like, what are the things I'm going to work on? So are you focused on comparing yourself more to yourself? Yes, I am. To where I've been and where I'm going. Absolutely. Because there's only one me and I can't spend my life thinking about what I don't have, what I want. Now, here's the thing. There's a, there's a difference, I think, in being grounded in gratitude being grateful for what you have and the success you have, and you can continue to work towards things. But I think more and more as I've gone through life, I'm less concerned about what other people are doing and comparing myself. Now I'm human. Of course I fall into that. I just told you, I'm like 
feeling FOMO that I wasn't at camp. Like, what would I do there? But it was just this moment of like, oh my God, everyone's there. Like every, so many people in my network. You're like, okay, move on from that. First of all, I've, I've been there many times. I still go there, especially because I was formerly in corporate America. And when you're in corporate America, as you know, people tend to identify you by your company. And so you get invites and you get all of these cool perks because you work at XYZ. And then all of a sudden, when you pivot and you go off on your own or you work for a newer company or an innovative company that is not necessarily corporate, all of a sudden, it's just different because you don't have perhaps the budget you once had on marketing spend. And so you don't get as many invites. Absolutely. Well, listen, I was in corporate America for a while and I never got an invite to Cannes. So... We got to change that. Okay. I'm still doing well. That's yes. all right. I'm yes. still good. I've never been invited to Ken Lion just to make you feel better. It's great. That's it. We'll start our own club of all the people who've never been and don't want to go. It's fine. But you know, comparison is someone said this in my comments this morning on the LinkedIn post. Comparison is the thief of joy. It steals the joy out of your life. If you're constantly thinking about all the things you don't have versus somebody else you're not able to experience joy in the success that you've had. It's so true. I believe that statement so much. And at the same time, though, I think we all get caught up in comparison too, especially with the advent of social media, right? We're looking at social media and we say, oh my gosh, to your point, like, oh, I should have put my child in XYZ camp. Look how much fun they're having. But we're seeing like a one second or maybe a 15 second real snapshot. And that's just not real. And people can formulate their own content. We see what someone has engineered us to see. It's the story we've curated, what we want people to see. And so that's why when I think of my social media feed, particularly LinkedIn, I want to talk about how I can educate, learn from other people, and also be vulnerable about the things I'm experiencing. Because otherwise, it's sort of like, look at me and how amazing I am and all the success I've had. And it's not, it's not always that way. Well, the success shows, which is amazing, but it's also so appreciated that you're being real and vulnerable. And I think it makes you relatable, especially aspirationally to people that are working towards that or perhaps even pivoting. Because let's face it, a lot of us are not wired to stay in the same corporate job for our entire lives anymore. And so can you take us back to a pivotal personal experience that brought you to where you are now? People ask me when I, or how I decided, I don't know if I decided, but when was the moment that I just became more bold and unapologetic, more vulnerable in sharing my voice and my writing and social media. And it was really, I would say my dad's death. He died suddenly back in February, 2017. And there's nothing like grief that resets your life because for anybody who's lost someone suddenly or knew the loss was coming, but you never prepare yourself. You just, it changes your life forever. And so then you start to have a different sense of life and that things are more finite than we realize. And so that you try to live your life to the fullest and every day to the fullest to make impact. Oh, I feel that so deeply. I, I really do. I'm like trying to like not get emotional right now. My father passed last year and it it's definitely redefining and Initially, it feels, I feel like I was frozen. I feel like I was frozen in that moment. And I 
didn't know what was up or what was down. And there were some complications. There still are some complications with, you know, some toxic people that my dad left behind. And so that's another layer that kind of delayed me from grief. And then getting into grief, I think it's an important topic too. I don't think people talk about grief enough, right? I think people are afraid of these conversations. People are afraid to talk about death or afraid to talk about feelings and grief and other types of elements too. People are afraid to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. People are afraid to talk about anything that hasn't been talked about, that is maybe talked about a little more quietly. And I love that you're using your voice on that particular, on that particular subject. So to that end, you know, before we get into the big discussion of DEI, which by the way was a, a topic point that Claudia Chan introduced to me. But just remember thinking, wow, what is this new world of DEI? So looking back at all of the things, would you do anything differently? What would you do all over again if you had the chance? Powerful question. I would share my ambition more loudly and proudly and with others. And particularly for writing. I mean, I've been writing ever since, as my mom told me, I could pick up a crayon. And I wish in those early years when I struggled to get published that I would have talk to more people about it because we need to say the things out loud. We need to put them into the universe so that we can help each other make our dreams a reality. And so that's the only thing I wish I could do all over again. I try not to live my life with too many regrets. I think particularly we go back to grief and people have passed on. You can rewind things. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. But I also feel like we're meant to be here where we are for a reason. And particularly with writing and jobs and all that projection was redirection, right? It landed me to be here with you today for this conversation. And for that, I'm so entirely grateful. And it's also leading you to writing a book, right? Yes, it is. Absolutely. So tell us about what you're up to and this book that you're writing. So I want to share this part of the story. I think it's important. I'm not an overnight success when it comes to many things and certainly when it, not when it comes to being published. When I left undergrad, I had a friend who had broken into Hollywood entertainment, and she helped me find a literary agent. I wrote a novel. This is where What Would I Do All Over Again? I was really young and stubborn. I got a novel. I had an agent. I got all this feedback from editors, and I didn't want to hear it, so I didn't change the novel. I wrote a second one. Wrote a second novel. Got more feedback. Didn't want to change it. Wrote a third novel. I'm not making this up. It was over the course of two years, right? Two and a half, three years. I write three novels. They don't get published. My agent, who I will not name, pretty big name in the industry, dumps me over email, like really, really mean, (laughs) really mean email, dumps me. And then I'm at this crossroads and I think, what am I going to do with my life? Writing doesn't really pay, but I love writing. And so I end up applying to business school and I end up going to Duke to get my MBA. And then, uh, believe it or not, I then wrote a a fourth novel (laughs) in graduate school, which was not published. I also, as I was moving recently, I moved a year ago, I found a nonfiction proposal I had written. So I share this because this has been a long journey. And then four years ago, I started writing a book. And the book that's coming out in October is Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. And I got so many rejections along the way for the book, and it was really painful. And so here I am with you now talking about it. It's coming out October 3rd, but I want to share that with listeners, because 
it did not happen overnight that all of a sudden I was like, yes, I'm a published author. It was a very long road for me. And what did that rejection teach you? Oh, gosh. Here's the interesting story I have. Many people have rainy day folders. Do you have a rainy day folder? No, but I'm thinking I might need one. Tell me more. So a rainy day folder is for the down days in your life. You click on your rainy day folder. It's full of love notes from all the people who love you, like emails and notes, right? Particularly like from a workplace setting, if you've gotten praise from your manager, a rainy day folder, like the days that you're feeling down, go check that folder out. I have a rejections folder. Yes, I do. I have a folder of all the notes and all the notes the editors sent me for passing on my book that my agent had forwarded to me. And some of them go like this. There are a lot of people who look like me to writing books like this. Can Mita come back to us when she has a book more like Sheryl Sandberg? Mita's writing pops off the page. She's a masterful storyteller. And I don't know who's going to buy this. Like she doesn't have enough followers. And so really painful, really painful, right? And I always was looking for where is the nugget of feedback? Because if anyone had feedback on the writing, I wanted to hear it. But the feedback was about a lot of other things that weren't actually about the material. And so my good friend Land Fan said to me, who's the CEO and founder of Community of Seven, she said, do what you do really well, which is community and conversation, keep doing it, and the book deal will happen. As I was just so devastated, I'm like, this book's never going to get published. And then I started my own podcast with my friend DC Marshall, Brown Table Talk. I was very focused on putting out good content, good content for free, quite frankly, focused on my job, my kids. I just kept going. And then one day, my co-host D with her assistant keeps FaceTiming me during the day. And I'm like, I only FaceTime my mom. Like, why are you FaceTiming me? I'm at work. What's going on? And then we finally get on a call that evening and they're both crying and they have a note and the, the subject of the email says, meet a Malik. And it's a note from Wiley, an editor at Wiley Victoria, who represents my friend Dee and says, your co-host sounds amazing. Does she have a book deal? Could you make an introduction? And so that's just a story of you don't give up. You just keep trying different ways to achieve what you want to do. It's interesting As I'm listening to your story, two things popped up for me. One is, no wonder you're thinking about comparison, right? Because these people kept telling you, why can't you be more like XYZ person, the celebrity of the moment, Sheryl Sandberg, and, and, and. And the second thing that popped up for me was, this was always going to happen for you. It was just about timing, and your timing arrived. The world is ready for it. Oh, thank you so much. This isn't just a myopic conversation anymore. This is big. Yes, it is. But I also wonder, was the world just not ready to hear this? I mean, were you talking about DE and I back then? And if so, was the world ready on the level that it is today to hear what it's about to hear in October? I think so. But I also think... Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a topic that will never go away. For me, it's about my lived experience. And I think what happened, particularly around May 2020, the murder of George Floyd, which my friend DC Marshall has coined the diversity tipping point, when corporate America finally said Black lives do matter. And there's been some 
criticism in the marketplace of what companies have actually done since then. But there were a lot of great books and material coming out. So there was this idea, well, she's just another voice. What is she going to add? And so when I was working on this book, I really thought about that. There are a lot of great books on leadership and inclusion in the marketplace right now. And so I wanted to ask myself, what would be my unique contribution? So I think being rejected helped me sort of redirect and refine the material for the book. I also think building a community that I love, that I'm engaged with, all of those individuals now not even having read the book are pre-ordering because they've seen so much of my writing and content because it's a promise, right? Many people haven't read the book yet. They pre-ordered it. So thank you very much because they believe in what I have to say in my writing, but that wouldn't have happened maybe four years ago. Absolutely. Well, maybe, maybe it would have, maybe it, it wouldn't, but for whatever reasons, publishers, journalists, right? There's always a topic that people want to focus on at the time, and somehow they have their vision of how it should go. Your book is coming out. I'm excited. Are there pre-advanced copies available to read? I have limited ones. I have press copies that are getting ready. It's coming out October 3rd, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. And I wanted to say all the quiet parts out loud of what holds us back from making meaningful progress. The stories we tell ourselves that actually aren't true. The stories that we tell ourselves that actually aren't true. This strikes a chord because I think women in particular, maybe men too, they just don't seem to show it as much outwardly. We are so self-critical of ourselves. Would you call yourself self-critical? Oh, absolutely. I have the, the voice, the inner critic. Two of my friends, Wendy and Lisa, they have a company called Fast Forward. They also have a book coming out I'm featured in and I took a training from them years ago at Unilever. And one of the things they taught me was about the inner critic, the voice that's in your head that you just can't quiet sometimes. And if you actually wrote down all the things that you think about yourself, you would never say those things to a friend in most cases. And so just thinking about that in terms of the lack of self-love and compassion we have, because the horrible things I think about myself, I would never say to you or anyone that I know. And so having more self-compassion is something I think we can all work on. Beyond. And what's interesting too, as you say, self-compassion, not only would I not say that to someone else, I very likely probably wouldn't even think it. Absolutely. You wouldn't. No, but I'm like my own worst critic. It's the way perhaps we're conditioned I don't know if it's a, a wiring from the get-go or it's a condition, but it feels conditioned to me. Like somewhere along the way, I had to do this better because my competition was a man. And so I had to do whatever task at hand, whatever project better, because I wasn't going to get any sort of recognition for it unless that I was doing it harder. Well, the standards were you for di were different for you from the get-go, and you knew that. I do think with how social media has changed our lives over the last 10 years, it goes back to the comparison, it goes back to the self-criticism. You have access to so many people's lives who you've actually never even met, right? <laughs> Reality TV, YouTube, Instagram, you're just like, what? TikTok, right? Like there are people who you have never met and you are obsessed with their lives and obsessed with what they're doing and 
why can't I be doing that or be vacationing there? Why can't I have that latest bag in a way that you wouldn't have access to all that information before? So it's the comparison, it's access to information, the comparison, and then the self-criticism that sets in. And also the knowledge that everything was just so much easier before social media. I really do, as much as I love social, I have moments where I think, oh my gosh, can we go back to a place where social just doesn't exist? Can we have like an a world, no social media day. I know that that sounds so strange, but I just think that would be so wonderful for my mind. I don't know. Do you ever have those thoughts? Which could, could we go back? Absolutely. Especially as we're raising children now, you think this is their world. They don't know what it's like. Like I didn't grow up in a social media era. They don't know what it's like, that it could be any different. This is their world in reality. It's kind of scary, actually, when you think about children and what they're going through. So speaking of children, I'm not going to get into yours unless you'd like to share about, but as a child, how did you frame the, the construct of diversity and inclusion in general, right? Because back then it wasn't necessarily the topic that it is today. So what was the point where you were like, wow, I'm feeling this and I want to make an impact in this space called diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, in the intro to Reimagine Inclusion, I talk about how I've been chasing inclusion my entire life. I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. We were born and raised in the U.S., my younger brother and I. We predominantly were raised in Massachusetts in the U.S., and I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. I was the funny-looking, dark-skinned girl with the long, funny-looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. Right? This idea of something being funny, different, strange, we start to other people and we start to stereotype. It becomes the gateway to hate. And I was bullied both verbally and physically by my peers a lot. So I knew in my community, I didn't belong. I did not belong in the greater world. I didn't see myself reflected in products and services. I always wondered who had the power of the pen, who gets to decide who's on shelf, who's in film, who's in magazines. Like it just really was really intrigued by it and wondered. So no surprise that I had a long career as a marketer and I'm still passionate about storytelling. And then I never expected that the bullies from the classrooms and the schoolyards would follow me into corporate America. Like that never occurred to me that that would happen. And so then early in my career, I reflect back, I job hopped a lot because I couldn't find the right place to grow and be. And speaking of children, I have an eight and 10 year old, 10 year old son and eight year old daughter. My eight year old is obsessed with Taylor Swift and she's obsessed with the anti-hero song. And there's a line in that song I keep thinking about where Taylor Swift says, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I felt that way for most of my career. And what I didn't recognize was that I was walking into spaces and places and a corporate America that was not built for someone who looked like me. And so my entire life, I had been chasing inclusion and then made a decision to transition to doing this work full time as a chief diversity officer so I could chase inclusion on behalf of all of us. And how do you think that that impacts your daughter? I don't want our children to have the same corporate experience as we did. That's full stop. I want it to be a different world of work. And we can even see just in the last three years how the global pandemic shifted how we work. Right. I don't know if we would be doing uh, a podcast on Riverside or, you know, think about all the ways in which we work now differently. I host a podcast 
with my co-host and we, she's in the same state as me. We're not that far from each other, but we do it remotely. It's just easier right, than having to meet in a studio because we all have so many things going on. I want the world of work to be different for both of them, for all of our kids. And so that's why I also do this work. I don't want people to experience what I went through. And no one should have to. And it's interesting because I felt just like you had shared, right? Taylor Swift had shared, I'm the problem, it's me. I always felt that so deeply, but I didn't know what it was, right? And there actually wasn't anything wrong with me. I just knew that I wasn't a guy because I was mostly working with men. And so I was trying to keep up, so to speak, and show that I was better than them, right? So it's interesting how early on this idea is seated I was an adult in corporate America, but now later I realized that those words still resonate, but in a different way. They resonate like, wow, I'm really angry at this person. And then I think, wait, it's not that person. It's me. What's going on with me? What is the, dare I say, trigger causing this sort of visceral emotional reaction? It's interesting. So those words actually feel like they still resonate just differently. And as far as corporate America is concerned, it has to change. It has to change or it's going to break down because it's not sustainable the way that it's built right now. It's almost like there are certain things you wouldn't want to encourage your children to do. There are certain things I wouldn't, you know, even corporate places, I wouldn't want her to work. I said to my friend Dee recently, my daughter has such a fierce spirit and I love it. And I said, I hope corporate America doesn't break her spirit. And my friend Dee said to me, she's not going to be in corporate America. She's going to start her own company. (laughs) So it is interesting too. I think the expectations people had of us back to the comparison piece of what success looked like, which was having a corporate job and climbing the ladder at all costs. It's a very different world our children are growing up in. And post-pandemic wise, as we think about this, corporate is not like the most amazing place that it once was. Like for me, I remember growing up thinking, wow, I can't wait to work for these big brands. And I am so grateful that I did. And it was so incredible, but that's not it anymore. It's, It's not even that cool, right? It was so cool then, but it's not that cool anymore. Now, to your point, it's like, wow, no, our kids hopefully will be running their own businesses and creating some sort of positive change through the work that they are doing. It's fascinating. Anyway, when you pivoted to DE&I, what did you find was most misunderstood? I think the perception that it's all about like panels and speaking engagements, and it's just like a nice to have, not a need to have. I mean, coming from the business as a business leader, I always fundamentally believed and still do that inclusion is a driver of the business and what gets measured gets done. And all of a sudden, when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, people get uncomfortable measuring things. And I ask myself, well, if I was back selling bottles of lotion, no one would have ever said to me, see how many bottles you can sell, and that's cool. That's not how it works. And the field has come a long way, but I was really surprised at the lack of measurement and analytics behind it. I was also surprised about the lack of really thinking about products and services and how they show up in the marketplace and who we're selling to and who we're ignoring. And that just was instinctive for me, having come into this work as a marketer. I couldn't separate that. 
I think I also could not have predicted where we're sitting right now with a huge backlash against DE&I. And these things go in, in pendulums and swing back and forth. I also think with Gen Z entering the marketplace, there will be a separation of companies who decide to be very clear on values that they stand for and they want to stand up for. And that will be very attractive to many people. They, that'll be a point of attracting talent. And then there will be companies who will stay silent and not want to speak up on issues. And the market will, I think, bifurcate. And maybe you'll have some in the middle, but it will be, I think it'll, you'll see a lot more changes in the next few years. Um, the demand people will continue to have on their employers on what they expect them to do and say and speak up. Absolutely. So there's two elements here, right? There's quantitative and qualitative. Yes. Quantitatively speaking, were you able to create benchmarks or KPIs for DE&I as a marketer? I have. I mean, and I know many people are doing this now. It's like, you know, measuring sort of what is the state of your workforce and what communities are you operating in and are you reflecting those communities? And it's more than just the representation. It's also looking at things like promotion rates, attrition rates, pay. You know, it's really interesting. I was just having a conversation earlier about exit interview data. Like, Exit interview data is one of the most underutilized pieces of data. If I like right now on Amazon went and posted a negative customer review or on Instagram, most likely within a day, a brand would get back to me. Most likely, or someone would respond. We actually don't do that when employees leave and leave like a bad review. We just kind of, I would say there's an opportunity to take it as seriously as we do a customer review and our employees are a forgotten consumer. We spend so much time thinking about the external marketplace, who we're going to sell, how much to and why. And they can be our fiercest advocates, most loyal advocates, if we actually start to think about like, what our employees need. And so I think from the spectrum of like the time I join a company, the time I leave, think about all those data points and what we can measure. And then there's the piece of like, as I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion, we're on a journey to constantly upskill ourselves to be more inclusive leaders. There's no destination, but it's a journey of how you educate yourself on experiences that aren't your own, how you think about how you can interrupt bias in the really small and big moments. And finally, like I say, like we are all an ally for somebody in our workplaces. Like each and every one of us has a responsibility to stand up and intervene when we see something, say something on behalf of someone else. Because guess what? I'm tired of the one speaking up. Yeah, it's my full-time job, but as a woman of color, I'm also tired of being the one to be like, hey, can you, stop, can you start pronouncing my name correctly? Actually, my name's not Shilpa, it's Mita. I'm not the other brown woman in the other division that you keep mistaking me for. And no, that wasn't vacation. That was parental leave I was on, right? Like imagine all the stuff we go through. Like I'm tired of being the one to like sometimes course correct people. It'd be wonderful if you were there in a meeting next to me and you actually said, "Uh, that was not vacation. Mita was on parental leave, right? And so then you're like, wow, like how does that change the dynamic of our workplaces? Absolutely. And talking about the mat leave portion, I can't tell you how many times I was told when I got back from mat leave how my vacation was. And I thought, are you kidding? This was the most exhausting vacation I've ever been on. You can't call it a vacation. That's insulting. And then I think about now how even now there's mat leave for partners, spouses. Men in particular seem to have a very hard time taking mat leave because there's this perception that that's only for women. 
the women that are going on vacation, right? So it's an interesting dynamic and it does have to change because the family structure has changed. Yeah, absolutely. One of the myths in my book is, of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. And to that point, exactly what you say, maternity leave outdated, and I talk about it in Reimagine Inclusion, we should call it parental leave. To your point, the world of work cannot change for women if it doesn't change for men. It has to change for everybody. So really, as you say, what is the stigma around men taking leave and how can more men role model the leave that they're taking? But I say that many companies, I believe, do the right thing. They have the systems and processes in place, but it's me, the individual who thwarts everything with my own bias. So comments like you come back from leave. How is your vacation? Who's watching your children if you're here at work? Are you sure you don't want to go part-time? Is that something you're planning? I know you keep asking me about this promotion, but I mean, you have two young kids at home. Is This is not the moment to be ambitious. I mean, I've heard it all. And in Reimagined Inclusion, I talk about the fatherhood premium and the motherhood penalty, which, as you know, is well-documented in terms of for every child my husband's had, his salary has increased, he's seen more committed, dependable, ambitious, and I am just a disheveled mess. And with every child I've had, I've made less. And so that is the reality of what we are facing in our workplaces, that it's not just about leave, but it is about the biases we bring in from our upbringing, from media, from television, from our cultural lens of what we expect women to do, the stereotypes we have about women versus men. And then the last thing I'll add is that not all women want to become mothers. And so then if you're trying to create an inclusive workplace for women, it's not just about mothers. It's about really thinking about women and all of their needs and the environment you need to create to ensure they thrive. Absolutely. I love all of this. First of all, I'm, I'm taking away that I'm going to start calling it parental leave because that's much more inclusive. And that does support men who are also taking leave because... To that point, I feel like there's this bias against them. I'm learning so much. I need to read your book. I'm very excited about it. And also the communication aspect too. It also makes me think we really need to have a very straightforward communication from businesses and corporations with their employees about this is what you can expect if you take parental leave. You are going to be protective. You're not going to lose a portion of your bonus if you are gone for XYZ amount of time, right? Like none of that stuff, I don't know about for you, but for me, it wasn't communicated. And when my bonus was cut and a lot of my time period of being on parental leave was actually during the holidays, I thought that's not... How how does that make sense, you know? and That's not fair and equitable. Right. And I remember thinking, wait a minute. I was gone, realistically speaking, for four weeks that were actually work time. And what was so insane was I was told, well, you were gone for, th- you know, basically three months. And I was like, but I really wasn't. And I set everything up so that nobody really had to do anything. It just, it just kind of was this working machine while I was gone. Your story is my story is all of our stories. I had the same thing happen when I came back from having my daughter at the time, the company called it maternity leave, had not enough days. They've changed it as of now, but I ended up taking six months. I took a portion unpaid. I came back And I got the lowest possible rating that year. 
And I said, but I didn't work half the year. I don't understand how I'm getting, oh, well, the business tanked while you were out. And again, I didn't work half the year. So one of the things I'm super passionate about from that experience is making sure we are all as leaders, as companies, making sure we are evaluating individuals on leave fairly and equitably. And we have rules set up and systems and processes. Because you know what happens, you've worked in corporate America too, is there's the bell curve. So you've got the ratings and you're forcing people on the bell curve. And this is also what I'm worried about with the new way of working. If I'm in the office less and you see me less, are you more likely to give me a lower rating? Same thing. If I'm on leave for six months, it's easier just to give me the lowest rating because it's the bell curve, right? Just put all the women who are on leave there. It's so true. Luckily, I had an amazing boss. And so I was able to get past that. But there were other leaders that laddered up to my boss didn't like that I was out of the office a lot. I was a marketer. I was constantly traveling. I was always on a plane, train, or driving somewhere in my automobile. And so I remember thinking, I'm always away. I was in the city a lot for meetings. I was just not in the office as much. And I got a lot of flack from, you know, a couple of people, one person in particular, who, if he had been my boss, it would have been a really big problem. So I think when you talk about allies, your boss has to be your ally. If your boss is not your ally, you're being set up to fail from the beginning. And I feel so fortunate that I had a great boss but I didn't formerly have great bosses, right? Like, so I know what the difference looks like. And it's rules and being able to be straightforward and communicate and having like parameters and guide rails that are set up so that people don't have to come up with it on their own or on the cuff will protect everybody. I don't know. I'm, I'm on yes. your, your bandwagon. I'm excited about yes, this. I mean, listen... I've had some great bosses and not so great bosses. And that's the story of all of our lives. And so you have to make sure in those situations, if your boss isn't an ally, who else is in the room saying your name when the doors are closed? Find other allies at work, especially if you don't think your boss is is doing that and representing you and well in meetings and talent review conversations and making sure you're getting the feedback you deserve in your career. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I read that you covered on that I really want to talk about is, is there such a thing as being too indispensable at work? Ooh, yes. I wrote this piece for Harvard Business Review because I've suffered from it my entire career. I was taught to be indispensable. Many of us are, right? I was taught to be indispensable. But here's the thing. I had this one moment in my career where I had become so indispensable to this leader, he wouldn't let me go. And he had me do everything from, I mean, it was ridiculous. I talk about this publicly, but he was on the board of a nonprofit. I was helping him with invites and buying tables, which had nothing to do with my job. He would volunteer me to write strategic decks for other leaders, help them because I'm very good at storytelling, putting together, putting together a proposal. He would call me at like uh, 7 a.m. or text me on a Saturday worked around the clock, but I wanted to be there every single moment. I also didn't draw boundaries because I wanted to be indispensable, but he would never promote me. And I actually ended up leaving that job. And a mentor said to me, this is really fascinating. He said to me, of course, he's never going to let you go. You became indispensable. Why would he ever let you go now? And you're like, wow, 
So again, it's a lesson for me to work on the strategic priorities. I'm not saying, please don't take away that I'm saying anyone listening not to, not to work hard, not to make impact, but start working smart and make sure you're putting the energy toward the things that are actually going to get you promoted. Me helping him with the nonprofit he was on the board of and helping him buy tables. And he asked me and I said, yes, and there's power dynamics. It's hard to say no. That's not going to help me get promoted. And it didn't. Me writing other leaders' strategic decks, not going to get me promoted. Me working on other non-promotable tasks, other sorts of nonsense. And I know there's a balance. You will always have things to do in your career that you don't want to do on the job or things that are, you just want to make sure the non-promotable tasks, if you think of a pie, it's a smaller piece of the pie and not like 75% of the pie, right? Uh, So that was a really big lesson for me about how you draw, draw boundaries and work on strategic work. And listen, to anyone listening now, it is a tough market we're living in. Are we in a recession? Are we not? Please look up from your laptop and make sure you are working on the strategic priorities your CEO and leadership team has conveyed. Make sure you are working on what's of value to the company. Has that been your number one in helping you get promoted? That and also career sponsors. I always say, and I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion, I have been for most of my career over-mentored and under-sponsored. And I will say that again, over-mentored and under-sponsored. And people come at me and they're like, I can't believe you said that, right? And I think the market's moving. People are more warming up to this. And here's the thing. I wouldn't be here today without wonderful mentors, right? I think about that Hey Mama panel. How did I get it? Kate Luzio, who's a close friend of mine, who's the CEO and founder of Luminary. She recommended me for the Hey Mama panel. You moderated it, right? You introduced me to people. And now I'm on your podcast. Alex was on it. She helped me with my book process. All mentors, right? But here's the difference. What is a career sponsor? You don't sit in my organization. You need to be at least two levels above me. You need to have access to P&L, large budget, large team. You need to be in the room when decisions about my career are being made. You need to be willing to expend social, political capital. You are going to help me get a raise, a promotion. You're going to put my name on a list for a job I didn't even know existed internally, a special task force. You're going to help me get coffee with the CEO or C-suite member. That's what sponsorship looks like. You are literally advocating for my career versus mentorship, where you might be giving me career advice. But in the sponsorship, it's a relationship where we're both making impact at work. You shine, I shine. And you are helping me advance my career. And like I say, what is my job as a leader? The number one job a leader has is to create more leaders. So if you decide to sponsor me, it's a win-win. You're also going to make yourself look good in the process. And part of that has to do with allyship, right? Like we've talked a little bit about this too. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think allyship is a very broad term. I do think a career sponsor can also be an ally advocate, whatever language you want to use, right? And that they are helping you. And one of the things I remember years ago at the time the the CEO of Deloitte did was he ran around his exec team and asked who individuals were sponsoring. And he stopped them as they went around the room and said, it has to be someone from a community you you don't identify with. And so he actually made them each, at the time the story goes, pick two individuals who were from a different community from them and take an interest in sponsoring their career and that they would also be held accountable in their performance review, each of these C-suite execs. And so it is interesting to think about how you can show up for someone at work. I mean, that's really what allyship is about, is showing up 
for somebody else in those moments that matter. And in some cases, we have power and privilege we don't recognize, which can make the allyship all, allyship all the more meaningful, particularly if the ally is coming from a dominant group at work. And in many cases, as you have been, I've been the lonely only on leadership teams and teams. And so it's hard for me when I'm the target of something for me to constantly be speaking up. But if an, if an ally is there who's from the dominant group who can speak up on my behalf, one, the burden is off of me, but two, that person's voice might just be heard louder and clearer because they do have more privilege because they are part of that dominant group at the company. In my experience, it's usually been men, let's be honest, right, that have wielded the most power, at least in corporate America. There's an additional layer when you're a person of color, right? So what would you recommend to a woman of color to not just garner a mentor, but also garner a sponsor within the organization. Yeah. And I talk about this in Reimagined Inclusion. I give case studies and examples. So since we're both marketers, I'll share this story with you. Let's say I'm a senior brand manager in a company and I have just been tasked with an assignment, which is, Mita, I want you to look at the skincare division's media investments for the last year would like to understand our return on investment. What investments did we make across the portfolio? And what did we spend? And what did we get out of it? Great. My boss assigns this to me. Great. Okay, so stop and think. You're working on a project. Who else in the company might be interested in that? Likely somebody from the CFO's office, right? So depending on how big the organization is, I probably, if I am at a Procter & Gamble large consumer product goods company I love, likely I'm not as a senior brand manager going to have access to the CFO, but I likely can get access to someone in finance. And maybe it's Natalie, who's a VP of finance. So I'm going to get time on her calendar and I'm going to say to her, wanted to meet, I'm working on this project, wanted to get your insights and, and feedback. And you start to get really interested. You give me some ideas and you say, you know what, come back to me in four weeks. I want to look at this again. I come back to you. I send you some updates over email. And then you might say to me, you know, I have a team meeting coming up. Can you come and present this? Do you see how I'm finding a shared project, a shared goal that's a win for you and a win for me? Because you're not just going to sponsor me to sponsor me. This isn't like junior high where we have the best friend necklace. Will you be my sponsor? No, that's not how it works. I, as the rising star, as I call them and reimagine inclusion. I, as the rising star, have to have a really good understanding of what I'm working on and who else might be interested in it. Because as I have involved you in this work, you now see it as part of your work too. You're invested in this project. And so next time there's a talent review and someone brings up my name, like my boss, you're going to say, actually, you know what? I have some feedback on Mita. Here are the things I've seen, particularly for this project. She should absolutely get that promotion. I second it. So you see how I've just thought strategically looked in the organization, my project, who else might be interested in it. Now, here's the thing. I'm not telling you to go and get 10 career sponsors. You just need one or two. You just need one or two. It's brilliant because you're not just waiting for somebody to say, oh my gosh, look how amazing Mita is. You know, you're not just waiting for that. You're actually taking the initiative and doing something in a productive way for everybody. And it's a key piece of critical work. I didn't just come to say, let's get coffee. Let me hear, let's hear about your career. That's mentorship. I could do that, right? I could say, hey, I'm actually interested in pivoting into finance. Could we, that's different. And that's also valuable. But what I'm saying is I am strategically meeting with you about the work that I know 
you will have a stake in and you will be interested in. I'm going to get you more and more interested. You're going to give more and more feedback. And then guess what? You actually think you co-own the project. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. I'll take it. Well, listen, I wish I did that earlier in my career. It took me a long time (laughs) to figure that out. took me a long time to figure that out. Well, I appreciate you sharing your words of wisdom because I really wish I had figured that part out. I figured out the mentorship part. I never quite figured out the sponsorship part internally. I was very good at it externally. I mean, I could negotiate a sponsorship outside like no one else's business, right? And create so many collaborations. It's interesting how how that looks internally versus externally. And it's really not all that different. You just actually have to apply it internally. So thank you for that. I, that was like mind-blowing, quite frankly. You have to. And also what I would add, because I know you have a lot of leaders listening as well. For leaders, ask yourself, whose career are you fighting for other than your own? Whose career are you fighting for other than your own? Just so stop to think, am I actually sponsoring anybody in this organization? And just stop to think and say, are there two people I could sponsor and think about sponsoring who actually are from a community I don't belong to? And so that's also the piece of thinking about how we work on succession plans, how we really focus on diversity of representation, and how we get more, quite frankly, diversity of representation into our C-suites, into our C-suites. Thank you. So I have a couple parting questions for you. Sure. Okay. Please fill in the blanks. Oh, gosh. All right. Do you like fill in the blanks? I always love these. Okay. Let's see. I, I right. don't know. I, well, let me, I'll tell you if I like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Please fill in the blank. Five years ago, I would have never guessed that I would be doing this now. Boldly and unapologetically sharing my voice, being on this podcast with you. Never would have imagined. You knew you were going to write a book, right? But someday... I knew, I, I hoped, but I had been rejected so much. I kind of buried it. And you know what they say? It's like when you bury a seed, it grows. But I had buried the dream and it just like, it wouldn't, the universe wouldn't let it go. Like it just, like every sign kept pointing back to writing. But I think my confidence had been sh- so shaken. It had been so shaken. And now do you feel like you're, like as a person who has, person who has arrived, I mean, you, you had arrived already, right? Publicly, but like internally as a person who has arrived, do you feel like you have the confidence? And maybe this is a loaded question because do we ever really have all the confidence, but do you feel like you have the confidence now to say like, wow, I am ready to own what was meant for me? Absolutely. I feel like I'm standing in my power and truth for the first time in a long time. And that's my season. I'm going to embrace it. And I want to do that to role model more for other women, that this is what it looks like. Is my confidence shaken? Of course. Goes back and forth. My friend Christy DeSantis is an executive coach, and she really focuses on sparking confidence in women. And she talks to me about shadow moments. It's really interesting. So like confidence is not like, 100%. It's like my my iPhone battery charged 100%. It's like, no, it goes up and down depending on, and we talked about losing our fathers, huge hit to confidence, right? And so our stories are constantly being rewritten. For now, I'm really confident and comfortable in who I am, and I'm going to hold on to that for as long as possible. Thank you. And are your children in awe of the fact that you are writing a book, that you've written a book that is being published? So let me tell you my story. So my son Jay is 10, going on 20. My daughter Priya is eight, going on 18. And I had not told them that I had 
a book coming out. And my mother said to me, you should tell the kids. And I said, okay. So one Sunday morning, we're having breakfast. And I say to my husband, get the phone, get the, we're going to videotape this, right? So I'm all excited. And I was like, okay, hey guys, I shouldn't say guys, see language matters. Hey kids, I'm still working on it. Hey kids, look, family. Oh my God. Look, when I type my name into Amazon, a book comes up. So my son looks at it and he's like, yeah, okay. And my daughter says, can I have more Fruit Loops, mom? <laughs> so that kind of just nothing like that to ground you real fast. So I hope they will read it someday. They are mentioned in the book, but they didn't seem, they were hungry for Fruit Loops. So that's what they were focused on. <gasps> oh my gosh. Well, maybe. And that was recorded. So I have that little video forever. Oh, that is amazing. Isn't that incredible? Talk about confidence. There's nothing like confidence busting like our own kids. But it reminds you of what's important, right? It's it's great. I'm really happy that I'm writing a book and it's being published. That's written. It's published. Awesome. That doesn't define me though, right? And that's just another reminder of that. But you're stepping into your purpose and you are helping so many people by shining your light, which is huge. And speaking of shining your light, what is lighting you up right now? I know your book is a big part of that, but what is lighting you up right now? My kids. My kids, they're my number one priority. Number one job is mom. And then number two, my day job at Carta and then uh, my book. But yeah, my kids, my kids are lighting me up. Do you talk about that in the book about the fictional balance that's out there, right? Everybody talks about this balance, but do you talk about? I do a bit, I probably for a next book, but yeah, it's, there's no, it's work-life integration. There's no balance. There's no balance. And at the end of the day, I want to say that I was a great mom, a great leader, a great wife, a great partner, sister, daughter, cousin, friend, like in the balance of my life, I want to say I did all of those things well, but there's, if you're trying to keep points every day, that's not possible because some days really amazing day at Carta, not a great mom day. <laughs> some days amazing mom day, not a great day at Carta. You know, it's ups and downs, but I can't keep a checklist of like, I didn't spend enough time with my kids or didn't spend the time work. It's on the totality. Do I feel like I'm doing all the things? Well, work in progress. Isn't it always? And I appreciate that, that topic conversation about balance because I feel like there's always such a pressure to live this work-life balance. And I have truly believed now for years that there is no such thing. So thank you for validating what I have been thinking too makes me feel a little bit better, especially because I'm in this like different sort of season where I'm not in corporate anymore and I'm doing different things. So thank you for that. Anyway, are there any parting words that you have for our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. And I hope more people find their power and step into their truth. And, you know, once you find that place of confidence and just being comfortable in who you are, you're, you'll just be unstoppable. And that's the season of my life I'm in. Thank you so much for sharing, Mita. I'll be sharing your book in the show notes. So for anyone listening, please check out Mita's new book. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Over Again podcast. I hope that you learned something from today's episode. If you enjoyed this, please leave a five-star review about All Over Again on Apple Podcasts. 
please also let me know what spoke to you about the episode on our social media channels at all over again podcast. I can't wait to hear from you.